We've had a lot of talk on the show about command line heroes and villains. Hackers that use exploits that spend their time scanning and look for holes in the network to wiggle their way in and bring down their foe. What if I told you that one of the biggest threats to your network didn't need a vulnerability in Microsoft or Apple or Google to get in? What if I told you that all they needed was you? I'm John Cordes, and today I want to take you on a trip where you don't need complex code or a library of exploits to get what you want. You just need patience, smarts, and to know where to look. So come with me and take a look at what the shell open source intelligence is and what hacks wouldn't have been possible without it. This episode is going to be a little bit different than some of the last few. Whereas I've been telling stories in the past, today I'm going to start out doing a little bit more of a conceptual dive into a few topics and then tell you how they've been used in a few of the big time hacks. I'm going to put you in the mindset of a hacker at the start of their campaign. So let's begin with some broad strokes first. And to do that, we'll start at square one of our fake attack. Have you ever thought about how they get that information on you? How do they know your email is right? Or that this email they're sending is even going to get delivered? There's a stage in every hack at the start called reconnaissance. In short form, it's just gathering information needed to get started. This reconnaissance can be done on two sides, the scanning side, which we're not going into today, and the open source side. Open source intelligence is any kind of information that is freely available to you via the internet or public record, as long as you know where to look. It's also referred to commonly as OSINT, so if you hear me say that going forward, just know that's what I mean. In this instance, for a future attack, we might say, all right, I want to hack into chicken jaw productions. I'm going to look them up on Google and LinkedIn. On LinkedIn, you'll be able to find the company, and from there, you might be able to find a partial list of employees. And with that list of employee profiles, an attacker can probably correlate it back to at least a few different Facebook profiles. After all, not everyone has their set to private, and there's information that you can use to tie the two together. For example, both profiles might have the same job listed publicly, or the same profile picture, or maybe it's based on the location. I know I've got my LinkedIn location on, but I turned my Facebook location off. But if I had it on, you might be able to correlate the two and say, oh, this is me. Now you've got a bit of a bigger picture of just who these people are, and you might even have some more identifiable stuff like phone numbers or whatever's listed publicly on their profiles. When was the last time you went through and said, I'm going to swap everything to either public, private, friends only? I encourage you to do an audit of that because you might find some surprising stuff that is listed for everyone to see. If you're an attacker, you're building a profile of all these people you've got so far. And in those profiles, there might be things that we're considering keywords, all derived from stuff that you might have posted or liked on your profile. And they all paint a very tiny part of a picture that is, well, you. They can be used to do things like guess passwords or the answers to security questions. So, for example, myself. Someone might look at my likes on Facebook or whatever public profile they've got. They'll see hacking, they'll see Marvel Comics, they'll see cats, cybersecurity, Dresden files, stuff like that. And they'll plug it into a tool 
that creates varying attempts at passwords around them using this information. If they're able to do so, they might even view what I've been doing on Facebook. They might see that I've been commenting on things and take information there. And if I'm answering anything like those little quizzes that like to pop up from time to time, or more of a question posts that ask seemingly random questions, but when you stop to think about it, might actually be part of your own security questions, they'll take that information and add it to your profile. And if they can't guess your password, maybe they'll try to change it. At this point, what we're calling our attack surface is kind of growing, becoming larger. And now, maybe we're going to take that information and do something with it. Remember when we were looking on LinkedIn for the company employees? Well, maybe they had their work email as a part of that. All you need is one work email because now you've got an email structure against a company. Now that you have this information, you might know that it looks like emails here are the first initial last name at the company name because you found someone named bburns at chickenjaw.com. Using that template, you can apply it back to everyone else you found and now you've got a list of what are assumedly good email addresses that you can email, that you can try to use to log in, that you can target. With this small platform of information, the picture is becoming more and more clear. We might take these email addresses at that point and start to take a look a little bit more at what's now in public breach information. Public breaches. Do you remember all the way back in episode one with the Colonial Pipeline when I told you that the root cause of that hack was a reused password? Well, a lot of the time when hacks happen, there's a dump of information, sometimes usernames and passwords, sometimes valuable credentials like credit card information, sometimes it might just be your birthday. I can almost guarantee you that you've gotten an email sometime saying that you've been involved in a data breach at some point. And this is the kind of stuff they take. And if it's not publicly disclosed by someone, it's probably going to be sold privately. In fact, some of the time, it's even just a Google search away. There's a saying in IT that Google is your friend, and that really is true, but sometimes it can be your enemy as well. I want to run you through a quick example of this. We're going to pretend that I'm currently the target for you, the attacker, and you've plugged my email address that you have just found into Google. Now, this is an old decommissioned email address that I had a while back, but do you know what you found? You found a post on a forum where people sell usernames and passwords. They sell stolen credit card information, database dumps, and more. This is a public website where if you're a member, you can sell your services for hacking for the right price or buy a tool like an ATM skimmer. It's not even concealed behind the dark web. And in that post that you found, there were hundreds of emails and passwords, some of which included students, some of which were clearly work emails, and some of them were just personal emails. This breach data was from a hack on MyFitnessPal. Someone got all this information, posted some of it publicly, but sold the rest of it. Unfortunately for me, I was part of that public 450 or so, I think, accounts that was used as an example. I've since decommissioned that email and password, but the point stands. And you might be wondering why is this website still active if this seems heavily illegal? And again, we can take it back to episode one. It's hosted in Russia. And if you recall, we can't explicitly get it taken down from here because their policy over there is that if it's not doing direct harm toward the Russian government, we're unlikely to see any real action being taken against it. At this point, you haven't touched any command line tools. You haven't touched any special boxes. You haven't done 
any kind of technical hacking. All you've done is use Google, and you've got usernames, accounts, passwords, potential information that can get you in, and you're going to save it. Because at this point, you might already have your in and be able to just walk through the front door. This is why it's important to do small security audits on your own email addresses, change your password frequently, because you never know what is actually out there on you. There are tools that you can use. For example, you right now can go to Have I Been Pwned, which is a website that when you enter an email address or a phone number, it will tell you what data breaches you've been involved in. And if the latest breach you've been involved in was after you've changed your password, then you may want to consider doing it again if you haven't already. Open source intelligence is a powerful tool. There's many different ways and frameworks that you can do publicly and legally to get this information. But let's bring this example up to a high level. I'm not taking you back to conceptual topics here. I'm saying high as in, let's say a presidential level. I'm going to rewind a bit to 2016, just before the presidential election in the United States. A Dutch security researcher by the name of Victor Gevers had a thought. I wonder if it's possible to be able to log into a candidate's Twitter by guessing their password. You see, Gevers' job is disclosing vulnerabilities so that people can fix them responsibly. He's done it hundreds of thousands of times, and ultimately he's done quite a bit of good for a process. Well, the question he was asking now was a fair one. After all, these are people that would be steering the course of a nation, and if their account was easily accessible, and the password guessable, what would stop the hackers from potentially doing something terrible with that ability? Specifically, he was targeting their Twitter accounts because of how quickly information would spread to the public. So when choosing his target, he had a look at everyone he could pick from and chose the then presidential candidate, Donald Trump. Now, the last few years aside, at this point in 2016, Donald Trump is probably best known for two things, his long-standing television show, The Apprentice, and speaking out about his displeasure with the current administration. So we're going to take that back to what we were talking about earlier. You take this information and you start to paint a tiny picture. All right, let's look for keywords around The Apprentice. Let's look for keywords around his Twitter profile. What does he use frequently? Things like that. And Gevers took it and went to work creating a small profile of password guesses. I don't think he was ever really expecting to get anywhere with it. After all, you would think these are very secure. So, he guesses the first one, and nothing. The second one, nothing. A few more with no luck, but on attempt number five, something unexpected happened. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. You're fired. Yeah, on guess number five, with the password, you're fired, he got in. No uppercase, no special characters or anything like that. Just his signature catchphrase. So it's not like it would have been far down on the guest list for any attacker. However, for me, there are two surprises here. One is that there was no special characters, and one was that there was no two-factor authentication. That Two-factor authentication is a secondary code that needs to be entered on the account in order to log in. It proves that you are beyond a doubt 
the owner of the account by providing something you know, which is the password, and something you have, which is the access key. Gevers didn't really know what to do. He got in, but wasn't quite sure how to responsibly disclose this one. If he did it publicly, it would probably be inviting others to try and almost certainly get in just as easily as he did. So he reported it to the Dutch government so that they could bring attention over here to Donald Trump. He even included a list of suggested passwords that he could change it to, like MAGA2020! Honestly, in my opinion, not much better, but it was a definite step up and in the right direction. And that was the last of it for a little bit. But years later, in fact just over a year ago now, in October of 2020, Gevers decided to give it another go. It was just before the 2020 election, and I suspect he had the same thought. It can't happen twice, right? It's been several years, two-factor authentication is now much more commonplace, and more importantly, you'd think he'd learn a lesson. And fortunately this time, the password wasn't you're fired anymore. But the password was MAGA2020! One of the same passwords he had recommended. And still, at this point, no two-factor authentication had been enabled. This is on the phone of the now president, and he had this to say. Nobody gets hacked. To get hacked, you need somebody with 197 IQ, and he needs about 15% of your password, right? Which, frankly, was just incorrect. You and I both know from what we've talked about today that, with some creative guessing, all it takes is patience to get in. This is the leader of a free world, and his password was guessed with nothing but public knowledge about him. That's the kind of thinking that OSINT thrives on in order to drive exploitation. Now after this issue, Gevers emailed a division of Homeland Security dedicated specifically to cybersecurity to make them aware that the president's password was so insecure, and that there was no second factor of authentication. It was changed pretty shortly after, and in addition to that, it actually launched a bit of a change in how Twitter handles security for high-profile individuals. Now, they had more strict requirements for passwords and a requirement for a second factor of authentication. I hope you have a bit of clarity here on how easy it can be for someone to derive a password based on just your likes, based on what you say online, based on what you do. It's one of the reasons why random passwords are usually a better way to go because you run less of a risk of accidentally exposing your password to the public. Let's take a step back and go back to that email list that we had at the very beginning of the episode, when we were fishing around LinkedIn. Because the next thing I want to talk about is phishing. You probably know about phishing. It's when someone sends an email to you and it's got a link or an attachment that's specifically made to trick you into entering something like your personal information or to get you to open it. And you're not supposed to. It's one of the biggest problems out there because it's insanely easy to do, and the attackers don't really care if they get your email address wrong, as long as they get someone else's email address right. So when they're forming these lists, they'll use multiple attempts at email addresses. They might take jcordis, they might take john.cordis, they might take johncordis at whatever email domain they want to use, and as long as it hits one of those, it's got to me. And while we're on the topic of presidential compromises, Let's flip to the other side of a fence here. Let's see how easily phishing can snowball with Hillary Clinton. We're going to go back to that 2016 election again. It was a big year for major cybersecurity issues with regards to candidates. And in this case, a major issue came to light when it became clear that 
personal email systems were being used for government purposes with regard to the Clinton campaign and positions. We're not going to dive into the emails or the policy surrounding it. What we are going to talk about is how one phishing attempt here gave way to another presidential level compromise. We talked about that reconnaissance phase where we did all that research and in March of 2016, Russian hackers did just that, except instead of a company, they targeted members of the Democratic National Committee. Within a week of the operation beginning, many of the members had been identified and email addresses had been guessed. Any of the valid emails might have received an email similar to this one that read like it was from Google. The address of the top said no reply at accounts.googlemail.com. The subject was someone has your password in asterisks. This one says simply someone has your password. Hi, John. Someone just use your password to try to sign into your Google account blank at gmail.com. Then it gives some details. It says Saturday, 19 March at 834 UTC. It gives an IP address and it says the location is the Ukraine. Below that, it says Google stopped this sign in attempt. You should change your password immediately. Change password. And then this is where it gets fishy. There's a bit.ly link. Bitly is a website you can use to shorten links, but in this case, it's used to also hide the fact that this is a malicious link. Best, the Gmail team. You received this mandatory email service announcement to update you about important changes to your Google product or account. And that was a message. In this case, the recipient was John Podesta, the former White House Chief of Staff and counselor to President Obama. To their credit, whoever maintained that email account, which was a personal Gmail account, went to confirm that this was valid and that the proper link was sent to change the email password. But when they got it back saying that they should change it, they clicked the bit.ly link instead by mistake. That link would lead to a fake Google password change which would ask for a current password and a new password. And that single link would spawn what's known as the Podesta emails on WikiLeaks. It's basically every email they could get dumped and posted online, and it made it obvious that government discussions were taking place on personal email infrastructure, which spawned this whole controversy. That particular attack was caused by the group designated Fancy Bear. Fancy Bear is a Russian threat actor known for attacks targeting journalists, the Olympic Committee, and dozens upon dozens of military targets. The attacks didn't stop there. They would expand onto more and more members of the Democratic Party, and the snowball effect would just accumulate more and more information as it was posted to WikiLeaks. Just one click on this link led to what was arguably one of the biggest blows in a presidential election to date. So, phishing might seem like it's a bit of a joke when you're doing your training every year, especially when most of the time it comes across as spam, like shopping or sex sales. But when it's directed right at you, crafted for you, it can be the tip of a long and dangerous spear. These attackers that use this information they gather from a public eye aren't relying on major exploits to get in. They're relying on you not paying attention. They're relying on you not having proper security postures. They're relying on you to just be you. And they take those small things that you might not think are important and use it to paint what ends up being a rather clear picture of who you are. Now that we've talked a bit about the high level and important attacks here, I want to take it down to the street level a little bit more. 
because in addition to those big groups that are looking to make a buck off you clicking a link or looking to expose your company by gaining access through you, there's stuff that OSINT can be used that's more close to home. And it turns out there's plenty of room in the law for these kind of activities, if you do it right. In fact, open source intelligence is pretty frequently used to do things like track people down fleeing from court, or even to catch online predators. That kind of position is pretty frequently referred to as a skip tracer. One guy named one skip tracer named Alex Price has actually made a pretty great career out of it. He's one of the most well-known skip tracers in the world, going by the alias Skip Guru. He's got over 30 years experience and started by simply tracking down people who weren't making their car payments. But now he donates his time and skills to participate in a program called the Innocent Lives Foundation. That program is aimed at taking down online child predators through the use of open source tools and technologies. Since they've become a thing, they've taken down nearly 250 predators online. They'll use publicly available information, maybe a little bit of social engineering where they disguise themselves to be someone else online, and whatever tools they can get access to in order to bring these predators down. Some other pretty common uses for skip tracers? Well, like I said before, people flee court hearings. They might not want to go to court, they might be running from the law, and you need people to track them down. You can essentially think of them as an evolution of bounty hunters for the digital age. One such bounty hunter was a woman by the name of Michelle Gomez. Gomez kind of bridges that line between what you normally think of as a bounty hunter and what you might think of as a cybersecurity professional. When Gomez was a child, her parents, who had worked for IBM, insisted that she channel some of her time into learning the ins and outs of computers, even going so far as to have her build one from scratch, including down to soldering the connections together on the motherboard. And she likens her online bounty hunter activity to the construction of the motherboard, saying that profiling a subject is a lot like constructing a motherboard. You have to see connections that are invisible to other people by filling the spaces between them with information. And wow, was she able to find these connections. In one such case, she retrieved both a missing yacht and a criminal wanted by the FBI. Back in 2013, she was contracted by Alternative Collection Solutions to recover a 53-foot yacht called the Morningstar. At that point, it had been missing for about a year and was allegedly in the possession of a man named Ryan Eugene Mullen. Mullen, at that point, had been wanted for stealing over $2 million from federal agencies. He was a bit of a high-profile target, but an elusive one as well. So after talking it over with the feds, her potential pay for this bid now became $10,000 from ACS and the criminal reward money for catching Mullen. Gomez started by using some traditional methods of bounty hunters and skip tracers called the SITS method, shelter, income, transportation, and social contact. If you can hammer down just one of these points on someone, you probably have a good lead. Unfortunately, using the information she had, Mullen was apparently pretty good at obfuscating his personal record with fake names and addresses. Even credit reports came up with multiple names under the same social security number. Eventually, through tracking a litany of name changes and potential points of contact, he and the boat would end up being caught by Gomez. In fact, she caught him securing the yacht on his way to flee because a couple of scam real estate transactions had fallen through. And after cuffing him up and getting him over to the authorities, she managed to get the boat released to her custody that same day to bring back to ACS. It's certainly an exciting field to be in from time to time. 
but there does seem to be a bit of a spectrum where the excitement can exist. For example, you might just be chasing down someone who's a little bit behind on some of their payments, which might not feel the best, or you might be chasing down people who are on the run like this. Now that I've told you a little bit about some of these jobs and the people behind them, I've actually got something interesting for you all. Next week is normally my week off, but I'm going to be releasing an interview with an actual skip tracer. You might recognize the name Cyber Sector 7. I've posted a few times about him and his podcast where he dives deep into open source watering holes and how he's currently tackling digital privacy. I don't know his real name, so for this, we'll just call him Tank. It's the alias I know him by, and I think it suits the situation fine. Tank has done the job, and I'm going to dive in with him and hopefully have some interesting topics for you to take home next week. It'll be a fun discussion on what kind of things skip tracers do, any interesting stories he might have, and tips for you to help secure yourself in a digital age. For now, I'm John Cordes, and thanks for listening to me tell you what the shell open source intelligence is. I'm looking forward to getting you all back here next week on a normal week off for that bonus episode. In the meantime, I encourage you to follow me at shell underscore pod on Instagram and Twitter. And if you like, there's also a Discord page that I'll link in the description of this podcast episode below. You can join there and have discussions with me and a couple other people. It's not a big channel yet, but we're hoping to grow it. I'll see you next week for this interview.